You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Thank you for being here. Last time, we followed Francis Drake as he made his way through the Strait of Magellan, losing two of his three ships in the process. With his sole remaining vessel, Golden Hind, he had then attacked Spanish settlements and shipping along the western coast of the Americas. He would score a major victory when he seized the galleon Nuestra Señora de la Concepción, which was loaded with treasure, including 80 pounds of gold, 26 tons of silver, and lots more goodies. The value of the prize was more than half the annual revenue of the English crown. With such a large trove of treasure in his hold, Drake decided to get home. He had first gone north, up the North American coast, reaching as far as Drake's Bay, not far from San Francisco Bay. Here he had refit his ship and taken on supplies, before departing on July 25, 1579. Drake's goal was Asia. He had done this to avoid the Spanish, who were on alert for him all along both coasts of the Americas. And that gets us up to date thus far. Now, a couple of quick notes. First, if you want to see a map of Drake's route, I have posted one on our site, explorerspodcast.com. Second, while you are there, feel free to click on the donate button. I appreciate any donations that help keep this podcast afloat. Thank you to all of those who have helped out. It means more to me than you can imagine. Third, if you have not, go over to iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast feed and leave us a review. I appreciate all the nice things that people have said about the show. And with that, let us get this gig going. Part 5 of Francis Drake. So, as noted, Francis Drake and his ship, Goldenhine, departed North America on July 25, 1579. Now, one quick comment about Drake and his time he spent in North America. There is speculation that he left upwards of 20 men at Drake's Bay, establishing a colony. Some have even said that this was always the plan of Drake and Queen Elizabeth to place a colony in the Americas. With regard to this, I have to say that it's pretty much a lot of hot air. I feel that people who purport this theory jump to a lot of conclusions. Much of the support for this theory comes from the fact that the number of men in the crew of Goldenhine changes of the course of Drake's journey. Some suggest that this means that a group of them were thus left in modern-day California to start a colony. Well, that kind of stretches logic. On voyages like this, the death rate was rather high. Illness and disease could hit a crew swiftly and viciously. Plus, there was combat with both the natives and the Spanish. That some deaths are not accounted for in all the papers that have survived isn't surprising, especially since most of the ship's original records have been lost. 
Anyhow, I just wanted to mention that bit of speculation, since it is often attached to Drake in his voyage. So, Drake and Goldenhine departed from the California coast, loaded with provisions and loot, and just as important, maps and papers taken from the Spanish that detailed the best way to cross the Pacific. It's important to understand that crossing the Pacific Ocean is not just about the shortest route. It's about catching the right winds and currents, as well as avoiding storms and other hazards. Drake now had this information, and he used it. Little is known about Drake's voyage across the Pacific, but Goldenhine would not see land for 68 days. It must have been a brutal voyage. Monotony and helplessness would likely have been the crew's constant companions. No doubt the men were wondering if they would ever see their homes again. But on September 30th, 1578, Goldenhine would finally sight land. It was an island, likely of the Carolinian archipelago, possibly Palau. Unfortunately for Drake and his men, the encounters with the local natives did not go well. As we have seen before with Ferdinand Magellan, some of these cultures have a very different view of personal property. The natives just simply started taking things from the English, and that did not go over well. They were forced off the ship and became hostile. In response to some of the natives throwing stones and threatening the English, Drake had his artillery fire a warning shot at the dugout canoes that surrounded Goldenhine. When this didn't disperse the natives, another shot was ordered. This time a canoe was blown to pieces. Upwards of 20 islanders were killed or wounded. This caused the natives to flee. Drake and his men would call the location the Island of Thieves, the exact same term used by Ferdinand Magellan over 50 years earlier to describe one of his first encounters with some South Pacific islanders. Still, despite their initial issues, reaching the islands must have given the men some hope for the future. They knew that Asia was not far away. There, Drake hoped to reach the fabled Baluchas, the Spice Islands. Goldenhine headed west, and about 500 miles later, in mid-October, the English reached the Philippines. Drake's exact actions after reaching the Philippine Islands is murky, but he would eventually reach Mindanao on the western coast of the Philippines. We can guess that, as he sailed through the islands, Drake felt out the natives he met and traded with them for food and water, as well as information. Here, we should acknowledge the skills of Drake and his men. The Philippines consist of more than 7,600 islands. Drake would have had to navigate the area, avoiding storms and unknown shoals and unpredictable tides. It was a dangerous journey for a ship and a crew that did not know the waters. Drake would eventually find a pair of local sailors to guide his ship to the Moluccas. In the first week of November, Goldenhine would approach the island of Ternate, the northernmost of the Spice Islands. Now, some quick history here. The Spice Islands, for our purposes, really refer to a group of five islands, most importantly, Ternate and Tidor. These islands were famous for producing such spices as cloves, nutmeg, and mace, spices that were found nowhere else in the world. These, as well as other spices, were worth their weight in gold in Europe, and the Portuguese held sway over much of the area, dominating the trade. At Ternate, Drake would find himself in a lucky situation. Ternate's ruler, Sultan Babula, hated the Portuguese, who had complete control of the island of Tidor. The Portuguese had murdered Babula's father less than a decade before, and they'd been trying to take control of the area for decades. Babula did what he could to keep the Portuguese out of Ternate and the other islands, while dislodging them from Tidor. Babula felt that the arrival of the English provided him with a golden opportunity. At the time, he controlled most of the clove trade, and he saw the English as potential trade partners, ones that would respect and support his position. Thus, when Goldenhine approached Ternate, Babula greeted the English in grand style. First, he sent out an emissary bearing gifts, a way to welcome Drake. As for Drake, he sent back a velvet cloak to the sultan. Babula then had three galleys escort Goldenhine into port, 
each galley propelled by eighty oarsmen and loaded with archers and soldiers. Drake, not to be outdone, returned the salute with artillery fire and had his musicians begin to play. By the way, a quick side note here. Something I have not mentioned about Drake was that he loved music. He almost always had musicians on his voyages, and he made sure time was set aside to enjoy their playing. So, Drake and Babula, both decked out in their finest clothing, greeted each other once Golden Hine was docked. The Sultan offered Drake whatever he needed. The first thing the English requested was food, which was promptly delivered. Drake and the Sultan shared common cause with their dislike of the Portuguese, as well as the Spanish. Babula promised Drake that the English crown would control the clove trade, in exchange for English aid in expelling the Portuguese from the Moluccas. Drake agreed to this deal, and said that within two years, the English would return with ships to aid the Sultan in his war. The two sides would exchange many gifts, and Drake would take on six tons of cloves. For Drake, this was a coup. He was now loaded with supplies, and he had added six tons of valuable cloves, and he had made an agreement that could potentially have enormous long-term ramifications, both political and economic, on his nation. Unfortunately, Drake and Babula's agreement would come to nothing. Portugal would become part of the Spanish Empire in 1580, something we will talk about in our next episode, and the Spanish quickly went on the offensive against the rebellious Sultan of Ternate. England did not want to poke the Spanish bear by supporting Babula, and, to be honest, really did not have the resources to support such an endeavor. Slowly but surely, the Spanish brought all the Spice Islands under their complete control, finally capturing Ternate in 1606. After departing Ternate, Drake headed to a small, uninhabited island where he could refit his ship for the final leg of his voyage, a return to England. I want to mention that around this time, Diego, the escaped African slave who had been Drake's servant for many years, would die. How he died is not exactly known, but there is some speculation he had finally succumbed to injuries that had occurred off the coast of Chile about a year earlier. Drake and Goldenhine set sail on December 12, 1579. The ship now had about 60 to 65 men on board. The exact route Drake took at this point is not known, but he likely sailed southwest from the Spice Islands and into the Maluka, Banda, and Flores Seas, wending his way through islands such as Sulawesa and Timor and a thousand others. The main thing that he wanted to do was avoid a confrontation with the Portuguese. The next few weeks would be dangerous ones for Goldenhine, and her route took her into a maze of islands and shoals and reefs. Progress was slow and tedious, as the ship had to be extraordinarily careful not to run aground. Well, despite all the best precautions, Goldenhine would run out of luck on the evening of January 9, 1580, when the ship struck a reef and came to a screeching halt. Initial attempts to dislodge Goldenhine did not go well, and the winds were a big problem, driving the vessel even further onto the reef. Now, on the positive side, Goldenhine had withstood the impact of striking the reef and did not have a hole ripped in her hull. However, she was firmly stuck. Also, the ship was nearly 20 miles from land, meaning help was nowhere near. Various schemes to free Goldenhine from the reef were met with frustration. One strategy involved dropping an anchor to the ocean, whose cables could then be pulled on to try and draw the ship into deeper water. However, the English tested the waters around the reef and found no solid ground, even at depths of almost 2,000 feet. This meant that Goldenhine had struck a reef that jutted up sharply from a deep, deep depth. When these ideas failed, the men turned to other options. In an attempt to lighten the load, half the cloves were tossed overboard, as well as a pair of artillery pieces, ammunition, and other objects. Still no luck. Of course, the men prayed for divine intervention. And this leads to one of the oddest moments of Drake's voyage. The ship's clergyman, a man named Francis Fletcher, apparently made some remarks passing off the dire situation as God's revenge for Drake's ill actions, 
likely referring to the execution of Thomas Doty more than a year before. Well, Drake wasn't the kind of man to talk to like that, and Parson Fletcher would face Drake's wrath. Drake ordered the man chained to a hatch, and then, in front of the crew, excommunicated him. Drake called him, quote, ye falsest knave that liveth, end quote. It was kind of crazy stuff, but by now, everyone should have known what would happen if they messed with their captain. So, just as things were looking bad for Goldenhine, Drake's luck would return. The wind suddenly shifted, and the ship was lifted off the reef. Goldenhine was free. Her hull was damaged, but intact. Drake and his men had just dodged a huge bullet. We don't know exactly where Drake went next, other than that it was an island, where he took some time to repair Goldenhine. Drake would eventually reach the port of Jalachip on the southern shore of the island of Java, where he would add provisions and make final preparations for his upcoming journey home. Finally, on March 26th, Goldenhine would set sail. For eight weeks, the ship pushed across the Indian Ocean, reaching the coast of Africa on May 21st. This leg of the journey, across the Indian Ocean and up the coast of Africa, is not very well documented. We know that Drake rounded the Cape of Good Hope, the southern tip of Africa, sometime in June. He then headed up the African coast. Goldenhine would reach Sierra Leone on July 22, 1580. Here, the ship would take on much-needed food and water. Now, we covered almost 10,000 miles from Java to Sierra Leone in just a few sentences. As I noted, not a lot is known about this time frame due to all the records of the fleet being lost. However, conducting this leg of the journey had been a remarkable feat. First, Drake had led his ship around the Cape of Good Hope, a place very dangerous to traverse. He had done this with no maps, no charts, and no experience. And let us remember, at this time, it was estimated that one in six ships that tried to sail around the Cape did not make it. So for Drake to accomplish the task is a nod to the seamanship of him and his crew. Second, the voyage up the coast of Africa was legendarily difficult and dangerous because of the lack of food and water and the hostile native peoples. The Portuguese had a series of ports and outposts along the route, and they knew where they could find food and water. But Drake had no access to these places or to that information. He had to manage it on his own, and he did, but it was difficult. We do know that by the time Goldenhine reached Sierra Leone, the ship was relying heavily on rainwater to survive, and each crewman was down to a third of a pint of water a day. Another issue would have been food, and scurvy would have been a serious threat. But the English seemed to have avoided too many losses from the illness. In Sierra Leone, they would have loaded up on fruit, in particular lemons. With the ship replenished with food and water, Goldenhine began her final leg of her voyage, a return to England. On September 26, 1580, Francis Drake and Goldenhine cruised in the Plymouth Sound, asking questions to the fishing and trading boats that they passed. When Goldenhine docked, she held Drake and 59 crewmen. The proportion of men who had survived the circumnavigation was remarkably high. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. So here we are. Francis Drake had done it. He had just accomplished one of the greatest feats of navigation in history, the circumnavigation of the globe. It was only the second time the feat had been done, the first nearly 60 years earlier by Magellan's crew. Drake had traveled an estimated 36,000 miles, disrupted Spanish operations in the Americas, stole a bunch of treasure, discovered new lands, crossed the Pacific, 
reached the Spice Islands, rounded Africa, and had come home. The value of the cargo on Golden Hind was enormous. It was not just the galleon they had seized. They had clothes from the Maluka and loot from the towns and ships they had raided. It is said that the half-share due to Elizabeth was worth more than her entire year's revenue. Once Drake arrived in Plymouth, his wife would go out to the ship to greet him, as would the town's mayor. Of course, word was quickly sent to London. Drake's return would have stunned Europe. No one had heard anything about him for over a year, and most probably thought him lost. In Spain, Philip had fumed over Drake's piratical activities, and hearing that he had returned safely to England would have been the ultimate punch in the nose. And while Spain no doubt raged at Drake, his return to England was hailed as a triumph by those at home. Elizabeth's more hawkish advisers were thrilled at Drake's deeds, not to mention the treasure that he had seized. The common people held up Drake as a hero. He was one of them, after all, a simple seaman who had done what no one else had dared to do. Now, some people were not happy with Drake's return. They said that Drake was a pirate, and the threats coming from the Spanish were ominous. They argued that Drake should give back any ill-gotten loot to the Spanish crown, a way to appease Philip. Of course, the backers of the expedition were having none of this, and one of those backers was the Queen herself. From Plymouth, Drake headed to London, loaded with select items of treasure, including gold and silver and jewels. There he met Queen Elizabeth, a meeting that lasted for six hours. We don't know what was said in the meeting, but you can imagine the stories that Drake recounted to his monarch. Elizabeth was thrilled by it all. No Englishman had ever done such a thing. After hearing Drake's account of the journey, Elizabeth declared that all written records of the expedition were to be secrets of the realm, and Drake and all the men of Goldenhine were sworn to secrecy as to the details of the epic voyage. All of this was done to prevent the Spanish from knowing exactly where Drake had been and what he had done during his time at sea. Part of this was a simple desire to not give the Spanish information that might help them. Drake had gone to places that no European had ever reached, and that was valuable information. But the big reason was that Drake's activities were, frankly, illegal in the eyes of most. Elizabeth had no desire to publicly acknowledge what Drake had done. It would have provided fuel for those who wanted Spain to attack England. The Queen did not want to fan that fire. Unfortunately, this decision by Elizabeth would mean that all of the first-hand accounts from the expedition, such as logbooks, journals, maps, charts, and notes, would never be made public. All of these records would eventually be lost when the place they were stored, Whitehall Palace, the residence of English monarchs, burned in 1698. It was a terrible loss. So, it was the fall of 1580, and Drake was home. The details of his voyage were secured. The big thing to do now was deal with the treasure. The Queen ordered the loot taken to be registered, but not before 10,000 pounds worth were given to Drake, and another 14,000 were set aside for the men of the fleet. In reality, there was probably much more removed ahead of this registration process. By the way, unregistered treasure was a common practice as a way to avoid taxes. The Spanish had this problem as well. By law, one-fifth of the money taken from the New World was due to the Spanish crown. Well, to avoid this tax, it was pretty easy just to not list the treasure, especially gold and jewels and pearls, which were easier to hide than tons of silver. Well, no doubt the English did this as well. In the end, 264,000 English pounds of treasure was registered, but as I said, the true value was much, much more. I have seen estimates as high as 600,000 pounds. No matter, everyone was going to get rich. I have read that the investors made nearly 50 times their investment. Now, as noted, the Spanish were furious about Drake and demanded that the treasure be returned to them. Elizabeth avoided the question. She was in no mood to mollify Philip. A major reason the Queen put off the Spanish was a papal invasion of Ireland. 
I want to mention this because it provides some backdrop to our story and next week's episode. In 1579, an Irishman, James Fitzmaurice Fitzgerald, convinced Pope Gregory XIII to underwrite a small force of a thousand men to sail to Ireland and launch a rebellion against English rule. King Philip of Spain would give the expedition his tacit approval by allowing Spanish soldiers to be recruited and participate in the affair. Thus, a small army, mostly Italian and Spanish, under the papal banner, landed in Ireland in July of 1579. This would trigger an uprising, causing the Second Desmond Rebellion. As you can imagine, this honked off Elizabeth to no end. The Pope was invading her lands and inciting her subjects. And while Philip basically said, oh, that's got nothing to do with me, the strong Spanish participation said otherwise. So, with the Pope, and by extension Philip, causing problems in Ireland, Elizabeth was not inclined to give anything to the Spanish crown. Instead, she told the Spanish ambassadors who protested Drake's return that she would be happy to investigate the charges against Drake once the business in Ireland was worked out. You gotta love Elizabeth. She was not a perfect monarch, no one is, but the woman was as deft and crafty as anyone in history. So, in the end, the treasure was secure and the crown was significantly richer, as were Drake and his investors. As for Drake, well, he was the hero. The English royalty may not have cared for the upstart, but the commoners loved him. All England knew his name, and they celebrated his success. He was a rock star. The Queen understood Drake's popularity, and she went to great lengths to acknowledge his deeds, and spoke favorably of him. Drake, by the way, played the hero well. He was an ambitious man, and he loved the attention and the adulation. With his new wealth, Drake spent lavishly. He bribed and flattered the royals, and fawned over Queen Elizabeth, giving her many gifts, including a crown with five emeralds and a diamond cross. It should be noted that Drake genuinely admired Elizabeth. He was devoted to her, and she seems to have appreciated him as well. They would spend time together, walking through the gardens at the palace and sitting and talking at length on a variety of subjects. It was, to some, a scandal, a queen hanging around with a guy many viewed as a common thief. Only Drake was not so common of a thief. On April 1st, 1581, Goldenhine was sailed from Plymouth to the city of Deptford, a town not far from London on the Thames River. This allowed the Queen, as well as the public, to go see the historic vessel. Three days later, on April 4th, the Queen boarded Goldenhine, along with the French ambassador to England, Monsieur de Marchamont. Here, Drake was awarded a knighthood by the Queen. The ceremony was performed by the French ambassador. By doing this, Elizabeth tweaked King Philip of Spain, as now England and France were acknowledging the deeds of Drake. Well done, Elizabeth. Now, you should know that the knighthood awarded to Drake was a rare thing. Few people of Drake's background were ever made knights. A knighthood was a valued and protected status. The more nobles there were, the less the title mattered. But here was Drake, or should we say, Sir Francis Drake. He was the greatest mariner in England, the man who had punched King Philip of Spain in the nose, repeatedly. In addition to the knighthood, Queen Elizabeth gave Drake a jewel with her portrait, a rare thing, usually only given to a monarch's most favored servants and defenders of the realm. Now, a few things about the circumnavigation of the globe that I want to cover before moving on. To start, the Spanish will never get back any of the treasure that Drake hijacked. There was just too much money involved, and Elizabeth was not going to give up such a windfall. In reality, it was all part of the picking and pecking and poking that went on between Spain and England. It will all eventually lead to war, but that is for our next episode. Next, I want to discuss the fates of a few people who were part of this epic expedition. First, there is John Doty, the brother of Thomas Doty, the latter who Drake had had executed near the Strait of Magellan. 
John Doty had vowed to avenge his brother. He would try and have Drake put on trial for murdering his brother, but the action was dismissed. He then appears to have gotten mixed up in a plot to kill or kidnap Drake, but the plot went sideways, and Doty would spend a year or two in prison for his involvement. In the end, he would never get his revenge. The second person I want to mention is John Winter, who was the captain of Elizabeth, which had returned to England in 1579 after getting separated from Drake. We talked about Winter last time, and to be honest, he found himself in not such a great situation. Winter had placed a lot of the woes of the expedition on Drake's head, including the execution of Thomas Doty. Winter had thought Drake would not return from his voyage, yet here was Drake, not only returned, but loaded with loot. It would have been immensely awkward. No doubt that people were whispering that Winter had deserted Drake. Now, let's be honest, Francis Drake was not a forgiving man, and you would think that he would have nothing but wrath for Winter. But let's remember two things. First, Winter came from a wealthy and influential family. Drake was not an idiot. It was better to have Winter and his family as a friend than as an enemy. And let's remember, Winter had been separated from Drake and had elected to return home. Drake had faced a similar situation a decade or so earlier when he had left John Hawkins following the disaster at San Juan de Alua. Perhaps Drake understood what the man had gone through and had honestly been sympathetic to his decision. In the end, Drake could afford to be gracious. He smoothed over any troubles that Winter was facing for his decision to leave Drake, and everyone was happy. Now, third thing I want to mention is relating to the documentation of Drake's voyage. As we noted earlier, the English crown had taken control of all the written materials from the voyage. Some people wonder why Drake, or someone else involved, did not publish an account of the expedition. The answer probably lies in the Queen's directive about the voyage. She had ordered the entire crew, including Drake, to stay silent regarding the mission, on penalty of death. This was ultimately disappointing, as Drake loved to brag, and a book by him would have been awesome. In Drake's lifetime, the only account of the voyage published was in 1590, and it was a scant six pages. Other accounts of Drake's voyage would come out after the deaths of Elizabeth and Drake, but the primary sources would mostly be lost. Fourth thing I want to mention is regarding Drake's discoveries during his voyage. As we talked about in the last episode, Drake never rounded the tip of South America, but he suspected that there was no great land bridge to a southern continent. Well, in Drake's life, many would question these observations. It wasn't until 1616 that Drake's suspicions were confirmed when a pair of Dutchmen, Jacob Lemaire and Willem Schouten, rounded Cape Horn. Also, regarding the lands that Drake visited, such as those in North America and the Far East, well, nothing much came from these discoveries. Spain, worried about others imitating Drake, sent an expedition of 23 ships and 3,500 men to fortify the Strait of Magellan. Illness and malnutrition would claim most of these men, and the survivors would eventually abandon the project. However, this effort, as well as the construction of a Pacific fleet, did help deter others from trying to slip into the Pacific. In the end, Drake's deeds would go unmatched. Now, another item I want to mention is related to Drake's ship, Goldenhind. The ship became revered by the British people. It was a symbol of their triumph. They dry-docked Goldenhind and put it on public exhibition. However, over the decades, rot set in and she would eventually fall apart. By 1650, it was in such bad condition, it would be taken apart. But the English love affair with Goldenhine has endured. Several replicas have been built over the years. There is currently a replica in London. It was built in 1973 and has sailed more than 140,000 miles, including a circumnavigation of the globe, which I find pretty cool. Since 1996, it has strictly been a museum. Now, one other item that I want to talk about was the execution of Thomas Doty. This was a big deal. Doty was a nobleman, 
you did not execute noblemen like Drake had done. The incident upset quite a few people back in England, but let us remember, Drake was now very rich, and he had made a lot of powerful friends in high places. In the end, everyone agreed that the execution was a terribly unfortunate incident. However, nothing could be done to change it. The attitude was, best move on from it, let's not talk about it, and it won't bother anyone. In this way, Thomas Doty's execution would be swept aside, a black mark on Drake's career. And now I have two final notes for today. In case I didn't make it clear, with the conclusion of his great voyage, Francis Drake was now a rich and powerful man. Going forward, he will take backseat to no one with regard to maritime affairs. And finally, I just want to make sure you realize that Drake's circumnavigation of the globe was extraordinary. Not just great, extraordinary. He had done what he had set out to do and returned, and he had not limped into port after losing 90% of his men. Instead, he had returned with most of his crew alive and his ship brimming with treasure. And in doing so, this really marks the emergence of England as a great maritime power. Yes, it will take time, but England will gradually grow as an empire, primarily on the back of its great navy. So, that is it for today's episode. Next time, we will wrap up the life of Drake. This will include his role in the defeat of the Spanish Armada, as well as a couple of other expeditions to the New World. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.